This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. Special thanks to the newest sponsor of the Master Brewers podcast, Novazymes. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Dare to brew different with new and exciting hop varieties from Hopsteiner's industry-leading breeding program. Varieties like Sultana, Lotus, Bravo, Altus, and Contessa are now available in lupulin pellet form, packing more flavor and aroma per pellet. Discover more at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to getbrewninja.com and using the code BREWNINJA21. And it took 900 gallons of water to flush all those hops down the drain. We replaced over a quarter million square feet of plastic wrap um, and eliminated 16,000 pounds of pallet wood that would otherwise been broken and thrown away. This week on the show, how Drake's Brewing Company approaches sustainability. This episode is full of great ideas that could work in breweries of any size, including a better way to handle empty kegs that we should all consider. Hi, my name is Hal McConnellogue, and I am the Sustainability Manager at Drake's Brewing Company in beautiful San Leandro, California. How and when did sustainability become important at Drake's? Um, I would say at the beginning of 2021, um, they found it important enough to make a position uh, and a role and put me into that uh, into that spot there. Um, but in terms of being, you know, conservative or, of our resources, we've always tried to be, um, but we never really had a metric to hold ourselves against, uh, and know if we're doing good or if we're not doing good. Talk about the various ways you've been successful reducing water usage. Uh, success with water usage. Um, it's well, first off, water usage is really hard to calculate outside of say the brew house, uh, in the brewing process when you. You have flow meters and you know how much water you need, your uh, you know, water to grist ratio, um, those sort of a things. Outside of that, it's really hard to quantify how much water is going down the drain. Um, so one of the best things that we've done is you know, we've purchased a few uh, you know, fairly cheap uh, water meters, um, and we just install them in line here and there at different uh, processes and just kind of see what's going on there. Um, I mean, in, in an overall picture, uh, we get our water bill, um, and we know how many thousands, hundreds of thousands of gallons we use on a monthly basis, but we don't know 
where and what part of the process the majority of the water gets used uh, and where it gets wasted. Um, so I think flow meters were the biggest thing for us to look into um, and start kind of honing in on some of our, our our steps and process and see what we're using and where it's going, which a lot of it just ends up going down the drain, which is sad. Um, so I did a big project um, on the brew house. I had one of those uh, stainless totes. They're about 275 gallons. Um, I was really curious to see how much water was being used to rinse out uh, the lauder ton, rinse out uh, the kettle, rinse out the whirlpool. Um, so I got, with the brewer's help, I got them to uh, hook a hose up to this tote um, and just kind of measure from the top down uh, once they you know, did the initial dump from the whirlpool and got the, the, the hops and the troop out of there. Um, and then all the rest of the rinse water. Um, and I found out that uh, there's a substantial amount of water right here. Um, and a lot of it's kind of high strength wastewater too. A lot of sugar water, um, high in solids, leftover grains from the lauder ton, uh, left a lot of hops from, uh, from the whirlpool um, as those West Coast brewers do, trying to jam as many hops in that beer as possible. Um, so being able to quantify that uh, was really helpful in kind of seeing where some of that water gets used in the brew house that doesn't actually make it into the final product. Um, so that, that was one of our things that we looked into, and we have an idea there now. Um, in terms of cleaning tanks, I mean, you clean tanks all day long. On the hot side, you're not cleaning the tanks or cleaning the brew house in between every single batch um, if you run a multiple batches per day. Um, so a lot of that water use gets, uh, you know, used up in the, in the fermenters, um, and without having any proper way to quantify the amount of water you're using, um, it can just be alarming. Um, especially, you know, one of my water wise tips is, uh, water waste is behavioral. So if you're rinsing a fermenter, um, be it, uh, before, uh, or after the tank's been, been emptied and, and before you're going to CIP it and you're just kind of rinsing out the last remaining things and then. You get a text message, you know, somebody sends you a funny joke or whatever, you walk away and you start laughing. That hose is still running and all that water is going down the drain and I ain't doing anything. Um, so that's one of the things that we kind of found out uh, where we weren't really good at, you know, um, but it's all up to the operator to know, you know, when to turn the water off and essentially don't turn your back on the water. Um, and the use of submeters really helped us out there too to see, uh, you know, on a specific water, three quarter inch water line. I mean, that thing will, you know, pump out, you know, 20, 25 gallons a minute, um, if unattended. So that adds up real quick if you're not paying attention. So being able to quantify that amount of water for that particular process is really helpful. Let's talk about sparging because, um, you, you, I, I think you've placed a, you mentioned that you place a certain amount of importance on not over sparging. And, and that's important because over sparging isn't just a waste of water. It also sends more high strength wastewater down the drain. How do you ensure there's no over sparging in your brew house? And how do you recommend smaller breweries prevent over sparging? Well, I would, I would audit your recipes and really look at it and figure, um, if you could figure your water to grist ratio, um, how much water is going to be absorbed by the grain, what your total runoff, um, of your lauder is going to be, and then what your makeup water needs to be from sparging. Um, you can get a good approximation of when you need to cut sparge. Um, you know, some, some of the, the lower gravity beers, you know, it's best just to top up in the kettle versus running that water through all the grains and, you know, potentially picking up minimal amounts of sugar, but extracting other undesirable tannins and such. Um, so that's, that's one thing that you can do. I'm sure on your brew house, if you don't have a flow meter already telling you how much water is going in there, um, that's a, that's a small investment that'll have a big return. 
I know you've got some tips regarding washdown water. Yeah, washdown water. Um, <laughs> even harder than, uh, you know, rinsing a fermenter and, and quantifying how much water in there is spraying a hose on the ground and, and guessing how much goes through there. Um, one day I took one of our mobile flow meters um, and hooked them up to every uh, hose spigot, um, quantified if the hose was full open. Uh, how much water would be, would be going down the drain. A lot of it was between 15 to 20 gallons uh, per minute. Um, and then I hooked a, a spray hose on the end of it, a typical brewery washdown hose. Um, and those ended up reducing um, water usage by, you know, 75% in some places. So having a spray gun will certainly help you, you know, clean up the floor and stuff. But beyond that, um, if you're dumping, you know, trube on the floor, you're dumping yeast, you're dumping hops, a lot of those things you could probably kind of squeegee or um, get a big shop broom and push down towards the drain. And there's going to be another process that comes along that you're going to have to dump some water. Um, and that can help wash that out too. What areas of the, of the process are the biggest water hogs at Drake's and where have you made the most progress? Um, the biggest water hogs I would say would be in the cellar. Um, and that goes for pretty much all the cleaning procedures, um, on the, on the tanks and, and hoses and stuff. Um, one of the big things that we saw, uh, which we'll probably end up talking about later is when you do drop that yeast, uh, and those hops down to the floor, it takes a considerable amount of water to get those to go down to the trench drains. Um, and they need a little help. So I did a little project where, um, we would typically, you know, we brew, you know, 200 barrel batches of one of our higher hopped beers. Um, and it took 900 gallons of water to flush all those hops down the drain. Um, wow. And it was, it was alarming, but nobody ever thought about it until you hook a flow meter up to it. So from there, we made some changes. We'll talk about later on. Um, but the rinsing of tanks, the cellar is the biggest use, use of water um, that just gets wasted. You know, none of it gets used actually in the process and ends up in the product. It all goes down the drain. Um, so I think one of the big things to do is um, uh, like a burst rinsing system which is like an automated thing where you can, you know, push a button, it'll blast 30 seconds of water, which, you know, you can just roughly quantify that, you know, it's, uh, if your hose is running at 20 gallons a minute, 30 seconds will give you about 10 gallons of water. Um, that way you can push the button and then you can check out that funny joke on your text message and walk away and not have to feel bad because the hose is still running. Um, so that's one of the big things. The other things that, uh, that we are working on is a, um, automated CIP system which will really help us, uh, you know, quantify the amount of water that we use. Also reuse water too. Um, caustic is still good um, after the first time it's used, you know, until it gets too soiled. Um, when, you're, when you're rinsing a tank to maybe preheat it, you don't necessarily need to preheat it to, uh, you know, 110, 120, 130 degrees, you can just fill it up with some hot water. And then as your, you know, CIP cycle is running, it'll generally heat up the tank and stuff. But um, yeah, some of our water wasting comes from just trying to preheat the tank for the CIP, um, which is kind of a misconception that it's hard to get people to break from that you don't need your tank to be hot to be able to clean it. Again, too, uh, you know, verifying uh, rinsing after CIPs, um, a lot of people will kind of use their hands to touch the water that's coming out of it, which 
potentially as chemicals, which does have chemicals in it. And you get that slick feeling and people are like, ah, I got to rinse it for a little bit longer. Um, if you use a pH strip, you'll know when you've neutralized the caustic. Um, and that can save a lot of water right there as well. I really want folks to hear about what you've done with pallets and shrink wrap. Talk about that. Oh man, this was a lot of fun. Um, we, how we got into this was, um, we got a violation, um, on one of our waste sorting practices by a, uh, a county program that looks for people putting for the wrong stuff in the wrong bin. Um, so we got a violation. We didn't get in trouble or anything, but it opened up the conversation with them. Um, and they told me about some grants that they have to buy reusable transportation materials. So I asked them, I was like, well, what does this look like for us? Um, and they said it could be anything. Um, they grant people up to $5,000. This was in the county of uh, in Alameda here in California. Um, and so we started talking about what are some of the biggest, uh, most wasteful items that we use for transportation. Um, we have a fairly large facility. So we had a keg, a keg cleaning area in one part of the facility. And at the opposite end, we had the keg filling area down in packaging. So what would happen is we would uh, get kegs in um, from the distributor and they would come down to packaging and then we would drive them on a forklift up to the keg washing area, cut off the plastic wrap, throw it away, clean the kegs, wrap them in plastic wrap, and then drive them back down to the packaging area. Um, these things were also getting moved around on plastic, pa or I mean, on, on uh, wooden pallets, which um, forklift drivers, uh, you know, often damage pallets by, you know, having the forks at the wrong height, trying to come at them from a different angle, pushing them around with the, the tips of the forks. Um, and then pallet jacks too are notorious for breaking those bottom slats off those pallets. So uh, we were breaking a ton of pallets, having to move the stuff around, and we were wasting a ton of shrink wrap just to move things locally uh, between the buildings and the brewery. So talking with them, um, we came up with the idea of getting plastic pallets. Um, that are incredibly affordable, um, incredibly robust, and they can sometimes hold even more weight than a wooden pallet can. And then the other thing to tackle was uh, plastic shrink wrap. We've just gotten so used to just wrapping things in plastic, and, and that was fine. So we found an alternative, which is these giant rubber bands. Um, they're really fun. One person can put them on. It's pretty easy. And all we're doing is moving empty kegs and that's it. So there's no uh, danger factor of them, you know, flying off and hurting somebody. Um, so we switched things around. And so now if there's any materials that we need to move about in the brewery, um, we use plastic pallets. And if there's any kegs or any other items um, that don't have a risk of breaking or, or potentially harming anyone, um, we wrap them in a rubber band. and so. With that, uh, that five thousand dollar investment that we got for just applying for the grant um, through the city or the county of Alameda, um, we replaced over a quarter million square feet of plastic wrap um, and eliminated sixteen thousand pounds of pallet wood that would otherwise been broken and thrown away. Um, and just in that one year of running this program, it uh, saved us over you know twelve thousand dollars from having to buy shrink wrap and, and more wooden pallets. That's pretty awesome. I, I hope that, um, that I hope that message gets out there because I mean, there's no reason, you know, distributors, breweries, anybody couldn't be using this, um, the rubber bands instead of plastic wrap on, on empty kegs, you know, 
uh, and, and boy, could that make a big difference. Right. I think from a safety standpoint too, um, you know, running in circles and wrapping plastic wrap around something, you get dizzy, you know, there's typically hoses or, you know, other obstructions on the ground. You can trip, you can, you can hurt yourself, you know, throwing a rubber band around it is kind of like a cowboy. You just, you know, lasso it around one side and then you just wrap it around and you're done. So it's, it's a lot more efficient and saves time as well. Cool. Um, any tips on where folks could get those rubber bands? Um, the rubber bands, I believe, were from Aero Rubber, A-E-R-O. Um, they are based out of uh, Chicago. Um, and those things are super affordable. If I remember the price, those things were maybe a buck or less per rubber band. And we still, we still have a bunch of them. I might, uh, if it works out, I might get you to send me the link and then maybe we'll put it in the show notes uh, so that uh, others can find it too if they need to. Um, yep, absolutely. All right. Awesome. Side streaming is a big part of sustainability at Drake's. Talk about how you do this and go as deep into the details as you can. Okay. Um, Side streaming. I started at Drake's about nine years ago and we were already working with a farmer uh, who we've continued to through this day um, to pick up all of our spent grain. So that's one way to get rid of that. Um, We're looking for Another way to get rid of uh, some of the process waste, which would be um, spent yeast, um, hops, um, any kind of other trube or so. Um, We weren't able to collect anything else from the brew house at this point due to the volume of the water um, and the inability to separate the solids from that high strength water coming out of the brew house. So we looked into the cellar and we know as, you know, talking earlier, it takes a hell of a lot of water to push, uh, you know, hops and yeast down the drain. So our thing was, could we collect this? And if we collect it, what would it be beneficial for? So we talked to our uh, wastewater municipality, and they actually have um, a biogas program where they're willing to take um, high strength effluent and put it in their digesters, and in turn, from there they make methane and they use it to power their uh, wastewater plant, which is a pretty cool thing but they charge you to send it to them so we figured where could we get rid of this stuff for free it's got to be good for something so we filled the bucket we called our farmer and said hey what do you think about this why don't you feed some to the cows and, and see what they think and cows notoriously like sweet food so um we decided that the yeast and the hops will be diverted to a large 4,500 gallon tank um, that our farmer actually bought for us. Um, And then we were on the hook to build the rest of the infrastructure. So we figured out that um, our yeast and hops could be pulled from the cone of a tank and put into this uh, put into this holding tank for diversion. Um, and then we could filter the beer out of the tank. And then afterwards you still end up with a little bit, a little bit of yeast, a little bit of, um, a lot of hops, you know, and just kind of this slurry. Um, and what could we do with that? And so we now pump that into the solids tank, uh, for cattle feed. Um, and that has reduced our water usage by before I remember saying it was about 900 gallons to wash down all that yeast and hops down the drain. Now we can do that with 90 gallons of water. And that's essentially by, you know, pumping a metered amount of water into the tank after filtration, getting a pump and pumping over 
uh, the solids in the bottom of the tank to homogenize it a bit more. And then from there, we pump it into the solids tank um, where it's held. And on a weekly basis, um, our farmer comes out with a tanker truck and we have an automated system where they hook up, uh, they push a button, uh, the tank fires up and there's a, a big trash pump on that guy. And it pulls all of our solids out through a three inch uh, piping system in about 30 minutes. Um, so that has been significant for us, especially with uh, um, wastewater costs too. And typically having to dump all that stuff down the drain. Um, and we're also on a pre-treatment permit too. So they, they monitor our waste and they charge us accordingly. Um, so this has helped save us uh, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars um, a month and yearly too, by coming up with this process. And it's a free way to get rid of it. Um, and it keeps the farmers happy and keeps them wanting to deal with us a little bit more since we can give them, we have more to offer them. Do you, um, do you have any data off the top of your head in terms of like how much that reduced BOD or TSS from, um, you know, once you brought that, uh, that, that tank online? Um, just kind of taking a quick look. Um, I mean, the, the last time we were, we were metered, um, our TSS dropped down to, uh, about 200, um, where typically it could be in the 15 to 2500 range um and in terms of bod i would say it probably cut our bod down um by about half or so in that in that particular process um and this this well that we have in our cellar too is specific just for uh process waste in that uh in that aspect of the process we have a separate well for uh packaging and a separate one for brewing so it was a significant decrease, which, you know, saved a, a ton of money right up front. Yeah. Yeah. Um, any, um, I'm just curious, like any, uh, is that, is that, is that system like relatively maintenance free? Does that tank, um, need to be clean? So every so often, or, you know, do you have any issues with getting moving material in and out of it or anything like that? Or is it kind of just doing its thing? Um, it's, Kind of doing its thing now. I mean, there was a lot of troubles in the beginning. Um, we would recirc. We you have to recirculate the tank, or else all the solids will fall to the bottom, um, and then it's hard getting it going again. So we found out um, uh, we were recirculating by pulling out of the bottom and then just dumping directly back uh, from the top of the vessel, and that didn't do us any good. The first time we went to unload, I think it left about a quarter of the tank full at the bottom, and the pump sucked all the liquid out, you know, kind of like when you suck out the bottom of a, a Slurpee and then you're just kind of left with all the ice there. Um, <laughs> we had a hard time when we were scratching our heads, but um, we ended up uh, changing the plumbing on the inside of the tank to put kind of like a, a tangential um, arm in there. So it, it shoots it against the side of the tank, creating this whirlpool action. And we have the tank um, set up on a 30-minute timer. So every 30 minutes, it runs for two minutes and just kind of spins the tank to keep things suspended. Um, so that was our, our hardest thing to figure out, um, is to try to keep those, uh, those solids suspended um, enough to be able to pump out the entire contents of the tank without running into issues. Um, so after that, and the other issue too being is we have a, a level sensor in there. Um, a laser sensor. So sometimes if there's uh, like an aerosol mist, if a pneumatic valve closes and a little bit spritzes through, it kind of creates this aerosol mist inside the tank, which gives us a false reading um, on the laser sensor. But within a, you know, 60 seconds or so it's cleared. Okay. Um, 
did you have um, a couple of other questions? I guess one one question is, um, what do you think? Uh, how large do you think a brewery needs to be before they could make a, a solution like this work? I mean, do you think that some of the smaller breweries out there could successfully side stream into a, a smaller tank, but you know, a similar setup? Um, absolutely. Um, I think a, as small of a brewery as you want to think of, or even a home brewer estate, if you collect these things in totes, um, you know, 250 gallon IBC totes, you can move those things around. Farmers can come pick them up. You know, if you got a, as long as you got a forklift, you can put it on something. Um, I think that would be as small as you could go and you could potentially, you know, collect it for a few days. Um, the one thing to prevent it from getting, uh, kind of gross is you want to keep it, um, as anaerobic as possible. Um, but how our system works is, you know, once you blow out the bottom of a cone, all that CO2 from that tank goes into, uh, into the receiving vessel, um, gets vented out outside. So this thing stays in a CO2 environment the whole time. So there's no like bugs or bacteria growing. Um, and there's certainly no fermentation happening in there, but I think if you got, um, you know, small totes, um, small tanks, ours is a fiberglass tank. Um, these things are, are pretty easy. You don't need any special, um, you know, you certainly don't need super fancy pumps or anything. We have a, a trash pump, which is used for uh, big irrigation ditches for moving water around. Um, but it's, it's, it's pretty easy. It's pretty simple. Um, and farmers want it. So they might even, you know, you might be able to get them on the hook for, you know, a couple bucks or finding a tank for you. Does your farmer uh, handle um, mix, mixing that material into the spent grains uh, or do you do that on, at the brewery? Uh, they do that. So okay. yeah, we have two, um, open trailers, uh, that each of our two brew houses divert the spent grain into, um, that get picked up on a different schedule. And then the farmer picks up, um, our solids waste along with some other breweries and they, uh, they do the mixing ratios on the farm. Talk about how Drake's reduced CO2 usage by 29%. Uh, it's not easy. Um, First of all, this is another thing too. We were talking about water flow meters. Um, they make some gla uh, gas flow meters for carbon dioxide. Fairly affordable. Um, they're really good to know how your equipment and how your machinery operates um, and uh, how, how much it uses. Um, we've been able to find faulty valves, uh, gas valves through that um, process, just kind of auditing them. Um, any of the manufacturers should have. Uh, the information needed to uh, figure out each piece of equipment, how much CO2 uh, it uses. Um, but some of the, the low hanging fruit was, um, you know, we've had this hop creep thing uh, that I think we're all kind of getting a handle on now. And before we knew it was hop creep or the industry, you know, knew prevalently that it was, there was hop creep. Um, everybody thought there was a diastaticus problem and what was going on. And we were scratching our heads too. Um, so what we used to do is we would dry hop a beer and then we would put the blow off bucket back on there and let it re-ferment. And then a few days later we would test it for a diacetyl. And if it, if it passed, then we would crash the tank and add some gas to it. What we found out is that, uh, the amount of re-fermentation isn't that great, but it's great enough to be able to harness all that CO2 created and keep it in your beer. So that way you're not blowing off some of those hop volatiles. So this kind of stemmed from when the pandemic started uh, in 2020, our gas supplier told us that um, 
because there was no refinement of oil, because nobody was driving around or something, they uh, couldn't deliver us CO2. So without CO2, you can't make beer, but through the process of making beer, you create your own CO2. So I figured one of our low-hanging fruit things to do was dry hop a beer and then cap the tank and then just kind of monitor it over the course of the next few days, make sure it doesn't get too high, um, you know, blow it down if you need to. But certainly, uh, as I, sh- I want to stress too, uh, pressure relief valves are imperative in something like this and to make sure that they're in uh, good working order and functioning properly. Um, but we would get about, uh, you know, like seven to nine PSI, maybe ten, up to 10 or so just from this process right here. And it helped pre-carbonate the beer a little bit. Um, so that, that really helped us there. Um, going backwards a little bit too, if you're going to harvest a beer, you're obviously going to want to put pressure on a tank. So when you know that your beer is hitting terminal, uh, if you throw a cap on it for a day, you can get three to five PSI out of it. And that's all you need to, you know, push some beer into, you know, a brink or, you know, pitching line. Um, so that was, that was super helpful to us. Um, one of the other things, which, which we've done for a long time, um, is, uh, you know, we have a centrifuge. So when we, uh, filter our beer, we pump it from a tank into the centrifuge and then into one of the bright tanks. And then in turn, we take the gas coming off of the bright tank and we pipe it back into the fermenter that we're pulling from. Um, and through this process, uh, we can get by with using, uh, no additional CO2 just to move the beer. Um, I know a lot of places will uh, do the blow and go, uh, the feed and bleed, and I made up the push and gush method, <laughs> which is essentially just kind of wasting CO2 by pushing it into one tank and then venting it out through the other. Um, granted, that's a, a good way to keep your DOs down, but as long as you have uh, you know some sound pumps and whether you have a centrifuge or not, or whatever your filtration setup is and stuff, as long as you're uh, monitoring DOs and stuff, um, you can get away with transferring beer with uh, zero CO2 usage. Um, Another big thing, um, and this just came out of uh, uh, trying to turn tanks faster. We were always in the the idea that uh, the bright tanks after every beer needed to be opened up, uh, vented, CIP'd, inspected, sanitized, um, and then purged again. And that takes a considerable amount of time and a considerable amount of CO2. So we started working with our chemical supplier uh, to get a CIP acid um, to be able to clean these tanks under pressure. And what we found out is uh, when the the tank is, is empty after packaging it, We can blow the tank down to three to five PSI, dump out any remaining trube uh, or anything left over in there. And then we can rinse the tank under pressure with city water. Um, And then we can even uh, add some hot water to it to get it up to, you know, 80, 90 degrees or so um, once the tank is kind of acclimated to room temperature. And then we can run an under pressure CIP um, with cleaning acid on the bright tank. Um, and we tried this a few times and we would run an under pressure CIP and then we would depressurize the tank, open it up, um, and look inside and it was clean and, you know, it, it passed all the health checks from the lab department. So we started pursuing that, um, running an acid under pressure, cleaning acid on the bright tanks, and then moving on to a sanitizing cycle. Um, and then we thought the sanitizing cycle might be, uh, bringing some 
uh, O2 into the equation uh, because the sanitizer was an oxidizer as well. But we really found out that that wasn't the case. Um, so by the end of uh, keeping a, a closed CIP process on your bright tanks, we could come out of it um, and our DO on the tanks was in the single to double digits. And then from there, we would pressurize them up a little bit more um, right before we would start uh, transferring beer into them. And that saved a considerable amount of time and CO2 there. How many refills are you getting on a, on a bright tank from that process? Uh, before fully opening them up? Yeah. Um, we try to do every like six weeks or so. Um, and we pretty much fill all the tanks once a week. Okay, so it's uh, more of a time thing than how many fills it gets. Yeah, it's more of a time. I yeah, and it, some of the bigger tanks, I mean, are, are are filtered beers. Some of the hazy ones, we don't let go as long because you kind of start to, you know, some of that's that gets in there, and some of that, you know, foam and stuff on the top and everything, and you know, hot particulate and stuff. So those things we we turn a little bit uh, sooner. Okay, cool. Coming up, the the means is out there for some of these hard uh, to dispose of or expensive to dispose of products. Um, that if you can get them into a format, there's probably a company out there that uh, will buy them from you. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com MBAA. HS Sativa, brought to you by BSG Hop Solutions. Meet the latest in the BSG Hop Solutions portfolio, HS Sativa. Strong expressions of stone fruit, floral, and resinous pine flavors and aromas define this blend. Crafted specifically for use in hazy IPAs and other hop-forward beers. HS Sativa is ideal for aroma, whirlpool, and dry hop additions to hazy and juicy IPAs. Or for any other hoppy styles where a combination of citrus, tropical fruit, and pine aromatics are desired. Go to bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more. Or call 1-800-374-2739. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. The annual District Ontario Technical Conference will be January 26th through the 28th, just outside of Toronto. Don't miss the inclusive hiring and retention webinar February 2nd. 
The Master Brewers Brewery Packaging Technology course starts February 11th. District Carolinas holds a winter social February 12th at Cabarrus Brewing in Concord, North Carolina. District St. Paul, Minneapolis meets at Surly's Shide Hall February 24th. District Pittsburgh meets February 25th at Mindful Brewing Company. The 2022 Brewing Summit, that's the combined meeting with Master Brewers and ASBC, is August 14th through the 16th in Rhode Island. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Back to the show. The other thing that we were looking into was um, pinpoint carbonation. So this is something that we've always wanted to do. um, And there was never really the capital to buy um, like an off the shelf kind of plug and play unit. Um, we would spend massive amounts of time carbonating, you know, 240, 250 barrels of beer. Um, and you know, packaging was like, we got to package this. And, you know, sometimes I hate to say it, but we've probably all been here where we're just trying to put the the finishing touches of carbonation on a beer while it's going through the packaging line. Um, and it was, it was, it was sad. Um, so we kind of started working on it and all I did was, um, I bought, a T and on the outlet of our, you know, transfer pump or centrifuge, I just kind of started putting CO2 in there and seeing what happened. Um, fortunate enough for us, we have a long run of uh, process piping between our filtration room and our packaging hall. Um, so the CO2 is able to dissolve into solution by the time it gets to the bright tank. So we did a little bit more testing um, and found that through inline carbonation, um, our efficiency for carbine went from 55% using uh, a centered stone inside of a tank to 94%. Um, so this step right here uh, saved us a considerable amount of CO2. It was also great for our product because you know when you carbon tank, you're also venting off a lot of those aromatics as well, uh, just to get it in spec for consumption. Um, so this was a huge thing, and we designed a little system in-house um, with uh we kind of got nerdy with it um with a, a plc and hmi and some programming for it and stuff too but even like a little gas flow meter um there's simple equations out there to figure out uh you know how many uh cubic feet of co2 you need to carbonate um you know like one barrel of beer with you know its carbonation level already at you know x so we found out through capping the beer right after dry hopping that we could get our beer up to like uh, 1.8 volume CO2. Um, and then the next few steps through the inline carbonation, we could deliver our beer into the bright tank in spec at uh, whatever carbonation volume you want, be it 2.3, 2.5, 2.7. Um, you could essentially just drink it right off the line, which is kind of cool. So it saved time and it saved a considerable amount of CO2 for us there. We had a really great episode last spring about how bells significantly reduced their electrical consumption. Talk about the approach at Drake's. 
Well, the electrical consumption is still something that I am, I'm still trying to wrap my head around and work on. Um, we, unfortunately, our power provider is, is PG&E out here, um, and they're disliked for numerous reasons that I don't really need to go into. But power is really hard to identify the usage um, rate, uh, especially per per machine. Um, your power company will give you a bill that says you used X amount of kilowatt hours on this day. Um, but it doesn't really give you much more insight on that. Sometimes they give you a little graph with like maybe by hours or so. So, um, some of the low hanging fruit for us there, um, we're just kind of figuring out what's, what's the pricing rate, um, during, during what times of the day. Um, and we figured that, you know, the, the peak pricing rate is the time that everybody gets home from work. So what if we just start a little bit earlier? Um, we could stay in those kind of off peak hours by starting earlier, which, uh, you know, helps out on your, uh, your kilowatt hour price. Um, another thing that I'd found out, which was kind of cool is there's, um, a lot of times you'll see on your bill on a meter that ends up having, um, you know, a lot of power draw is you'll have a max demand charge, which essentially is if you were to flip on all your machines at once, um, this would be your max demand charge right here. And they, it's a, it's a surcharge and they bill you that for every single day, even if you only use it one day. Um, and I found out that that is quantified um, every 15 minutes. So if you were to turn on all your machines, turn half of them on now and then wait 15 minutes and then turn the rest on, you could greatly lower that uh, demand charge right there, saving you a couple bucks. Um, that doesn't necessarily save you on energy usage, but that does uh, quantify into some savings monetarily. Um, VFDs. Uh, variable frequency drives. We love these things. Um, as I'm sure with most breweries out there, you got a lot of tanks and they're all different sizes. And, you know, not every tank needs to be CIP'd at 100% of pump power. Um, so, I mean, we have, uh, you know, 30 some tall foot, uh, 240 barrel tanks. You know, we have some 20 foot tall uh, 120s and some 60s. And then we have some, you know, shorter 15 barrel, 20 barrel tanks. Um, they all don't need the same pump speed. So one of our things is when running those, um, you know, we have certain settings that we'll use, uh, depending upon what type of, what type of tank you're using, um, and you're cleaning and stuff. So that way you're not drawing so much electricity for that one process that might not need all of it. Um, that's been a huge thing for us. Um, again, it's a, it's a little bit harder to quantify, but you can figure out, you know, the wattage on a pump and how many kilowatt hours, um, and the price it would take to run that pump at 100% versus 50%. Um, Those, so the VFDs the, can help you with the issue you were talking about earlier too, because um, it's that it's that you know maximum amp draw when you flip flip something on, right? And a, a variable drive is going to you know allow you to to ramp up very slowly on that, so you're not going to get this huge spike like you do if it just turns on right away. Um, ab absolutely. What, one other point on that is that uh, in with some municipalities. Uh, probably more more often than not, you can get um, uh, credits for having for putting things on on VFDs uh, for for the same reason. So that's something to be aware of as well. So you know, a lot of the big breweries put these things on everything. You know, the um, compressor motors and you know, any basically any kind of motor that that you can you can run it on. So yeah, I think there's there's very few things um, at our facility that do not have VFDs. Um, 
So it's something if you can get into. They are kind of expensive, but um, you know there there's an, there's a, a great ROI associated with those. Um, some of the other easy things: turn off equipment at the end of the day. Um, I mean, we have a we have our centrifuge. We run it once a week. There's no sense for that thing to be on with the, you know, the PLCs, some of the electrical components inside getting warm, running fans. There's no sense for that at all. Um, but from a safety standpoint, too, if you guys have power surges and you have equipment that's kind of idling, um, this could potentially damage your equipment as well. So you might as well turn it off to safeguard yourself from things like that. Um, uh, lighting, too. I mean, a lot of breweries here, we don't brew outside. It's, it's not bright. We're pretty much all breweries are essentially caves, um, cold, wet caves. So uh, we require a lot of light. Um, LED, uh, we switched all over our lights um, in our production spaces to LEDs a few years ago. Um, and then we set them up on uh, motion sensors, proximity sensors. And then in some places, we even have daylight sensors too, where uh, if we have some windows and stuff and there's some light coming in, it'll kind of like dim the leds above us um but those things that they last a long time um directionally for their, their power usage uh you know they shoot light at 180 degrees whereas uh you know fluorescent lighting shoots light at 360 degrees so you end up kind of wasting some energy through that um so that's a good one but that's that's a little bit of an, an investment there but that uh certainly certainly will pay off um and if you can harness any natural light um if you have windows that are painted scrape the paint off of them if you have doors that can open open the doors you know use utilize some of that natural light it's not only uh good for your wallet book but it's good for uh morale and people around the brewery that are working in there get that vitamin d too right right um all right Hal, you've got some great advice for anyone operating a tap room or planning an event let's hear it all right. Well, when I took on the role of the sustainability manager, I didn't really, I mean, where, where do you go? What do you do? Um, the thing that always made me shake my head was uh, uh, the waste sorting um, and the amount of waste generated in the process of somebody going to a restaurant or a tap room and ordering a beer and, you know, something to eat and then where all that stuff goes. So, my biggest thing was to uh, tackle the trash aspect of it. Um, we have a, uh, at the brewery, we have a, a tap room and an outdoor beer garden and we have a kitchen and we serve food. So our waste was essentially, we were using glass at the time, um, which is reusable. Um, and our food items were coming in, you know, uh, a, a plethora of whatever was cheaper to get, you know, whatever kind of food boats or, or plastic or utensils, you name it. Like we were just kind of using whatever was cheap for us. So I started looking into that and trying to see what else we can do uh, to prevent just throwing all of this stuff in the trash. Um, in the Bay Area here, we're fortunate um, that we've got some super cool laws that they've enacted where um, any businesses have to sort their waste into the three different streams, which would be uh, garbage, recycling, um, and organics. So garbage is really expensive. Um, recycling is a little bit cheaper because it can get turned into something else. And organics, you know, gets turned into, you know, compost eventually. Um, which can be can be sold back. You can't really sell trash. So composting um, is a little bit cheaper, uh, you know, per cubic yard than than trash would be. So one of our things to do was figure out uh, what sort of items we could have that we could put in 
the compost stream instead of the you know recycle or the trash stream. You know, trash being the the last resort. Um, during the pandemic, I know there's a thing with uh, you know getting too close to people and you know touching the same glasses and all that. So I know a lot of places shifted towards um, single use items uh, in terms of uh, silverware, utensils, um, food trays, um, and especially especially uh, the types of you know vessel you guys serve your beer in. So we took away glass. And we moved over to kind of like a plant-based uh, greenware cup, um, which is a, a polylactic acid, which is derived from um, uh, corn and, and some other kind of uh, some other kind of crops. Which is in turn, if you have a uh, secondary composting facility or organics facility that can break these things down, um, it works well with there. These aren't the type of things you can throw in your backyard and you know go out in a couple of weeks and. Um, you know, add to your garden um, as amendment, but um, they are a good alternative because they don't have to go in the trash and they don't have to go in their cycle. Um, one of the downfalls of this is that it looks like a plastic cup. It looks like a plastic cup with either a green leaf on it or a green stripe. And people are, you know, just used to, you know, throwing plastic cups in the trash. And I think that kind of has to go with uh, the typical keg cups, the red solo keg cups that we all grew upon, you know, drinking in our younger years. So um, we decided to move to those plant-based cups um, and and go from there. And then we saw that they were getting put in the recycling, which contaminates it. They're put in the trash, which means we just spent a lot of money uh, purchasing this cup um, to give to the customer that ultimately is going to go in the trash and it defeats our whole purpose. So what we wanted to do here was, uh, create some visual signage. Um, we're lucky again here too, um, in Alameda County is we have a, uh, a program here that creates signage for you and they've, you know, helped designate green for organics, black for garbage and blue for recycling. Um, and they make, they have this uh, little program online where you can build your own uh, waste assorting signage and then put it up. So I took that signage, um, put our Drake's logo on there, kind of kept it the same um, color schemes and theme because this is distributed through a lot of other businesses uh, in our area. So people have become familiar with it. Um, and instead of putting these generic uh, uh, images on there, I took pictures of you know some common items that we end up using and serving customers at the brewery. Um, and where they go. So um, if whenever we have our trash or recycle stations, which always have organics, uh, recycling and garbage. Um, and if you look at the organics one, it has like an actual picture of one of our PLA uh, cups with one of our actual beers in it. And I put that on there and I was like, hey, these cups are compostable. This is where they go. Um, some signage with the utensils too, the corn-based, plant-based utensils, picture of a burger, some food scraps, the paper food boats, you know, hey, these go here. Um, a lot of people read left to right, so I try to design it so that the organics are on the left, recycling is in the middle, and garbage on the right. So that way, as you go from left to right, you can put what actually goes in these things. And then when you reach the garbage container, you're like, well, I guess this is the end of the road for this. Nothing else I could do with it. Thanks for your help, you know? So uh, with this, it's helped us a lot because businesses are on the hook to ensure that their consumers and their customers are... Um, properly sorting their items into the waste streams. And since um, 
at these outdoor beer gardens that we have and with the amount of customers we have on a daily basis, uh, we rely upon them to bust their own tables um, just at our tap room. So we need them to kind of make the right decision and without being informed, how could they make the right decision? So um, I'd like to think that we're, you know, helping out the world here a little bit, but certainly helping out our, our community by educating people what type of uh, um, items can go into, into what stream. Um, some other things too, if you're going to, you can make a zero waste event. It's, it's not that hard. It takes a little bit of thinking. Um, beer events inherently shouldn't have a lot of trash. I mean, people are showing up if they have stuff in their pockets. Uh, that's one thing. Um, but a lot of it, if you're going to have, uh, cups for people to, uh, consume beverages out of, um, make it a keepsake, a keepsake glass. Those are always cool. Um, you can even make them, uh, we were going to have a festival, um, in this February and the, uh, cups that we were going to use, uh, were stainless steel cups with a little carabiner. So you'd get your cup filled. Um, and at the end of the day, you clip that carabiner onto your, uh, your belt loop or something and you go home and you can use it again, you know, when you're camping or what have you. Um, so trying to eliminate single use items at beer festivals, uh, is, is a no brainer and something that's easy, to, easy to do. Um, also, if you're going to have vendors at some of these uh, tap rooms and events, ask that they use, uh, you know, sustainable products in terms of what they're going to be delivering out to the uh, the customers. Um, you know, plant based utensils, uh, compostable, um, you know, uh, food boats, uh, and wax paper, um, those kind of things, um, and always have you know, proper signage. People, people don't know what to do. If they see, if they see a, a trash can, um, or a vessel that looks like a can, uh, they're just going to throw whatever they can in it and stuff. Um, wherever you're going to, if you think you're going to put a trash can somewhere, you better have organics and a recycling bin there too. Cause I think people want to do the right thing, but you have to help them along and, and inform a little bit of the way. Um, and a, another big thing that's, uh, oh, just the worst. If you've ever been to a festival is those wristbands which are, uh, those wristbands are made out of plastic, plastic fibers. Um, they don't break down. They get clogged up in the recycling system. They end up in trash. And the little tabs that you got to pull off with the adhesive on them to wrap around, um, those things ultimately just end up on the ground. Um, so there's actually some really cool alternatives out there uh, that you can use. Um, and even as much as there's, they make these wristbands um, that are made out of paper and they have seeds inside of them. So they have a little ad adhesive part to it with no tab. You wrap it around a wrist. It sticks on there. The, uh, the event's over. And if you take the wristband off, I don't condone this just throwing stuff on the ground. But if somebody was to do this, there are seeds in there. And if it was blow to blow into a little dirt area with some bushes, uh, next time it rains and stuff, the seeds will sow uh, and it'll grow some flowers. Hmm. That's cool. I have not seen those before. Um, that's something else. Maybe you can send us a link to that. We'll put that on the, in the show notes as well. Okay. Sorting waste is not just important in the tap room. Talk about sort of what it's done for you uh, in, in the production area of the brewery. Um, yeah, there's, I mean, we're not going to deny the fact that making beers is a, is, a, is a messy process, a dirty process and generates a lot of waste. Um, that isn't just something you can wash down the drain. Um, I mean, we try to do, uh, organic items wh wherever we can, anything that might be biodegradable and compostable. Um, and then we, we double check too, uh, to make sure that 
those end up being the items, you know, like trash bags that are colored green um, are nothing more than green colored trash bags. It doesn't mean that they're, they're compostable or anything. Um, but some of the biggest waste is uh, every brewery gets stuff in boxes. Um, boxes are how pretty much all materials move nowadays. Um, and you end up with a ton of boxes. So we were in a situation, especially if you have a, a you know, a restroom or a restaurant on tap. Um, we would, a lot of food boxes, um, certainly hot boxes. And we would have those and we would send them out to the recycling bin and we would generate so much that, I mean, we'd put them off to the side and, and hope that somebody shows up in a, in a truck and throws them in the back of them and takes them off and recycles them. And, uh, we decided, wait, we're, we're paying all this money to recycle cardboard. Um, and we generate a ton of it. Why can't we figure out how to turn that into revenue for us? Um, so we ended up getting a bailer from a company that uh, uh, had moved in next door and they had closed down. So we got the bailer from them. We hooked it up. Um, and now uh, all the, uh, the restaurant cardboard uh, from the kitchen, all those, those hot boxes, um, any packaging boxes that, you know, the six pack carriers come in, the mother cartoner carriers come in, um, all sorts of stuff. And we just throw this in the bailer. Um, and I did some initial testing by going around the brewery and figuring out what kind of cardboard waste there was. I even, I measured the boxes, figured out how many we'd use in each building, uh, you know, per week, per month, figured out the weight of them, and then kind of quantified how much, uh, we would pay, uh, to dispose of all this stuff through our, um, uh, recycler and then how much revenue we could make if we were to bail it and then sell it. Um, and it was kind of, I went to ownership and it was a, it was a no brainer. They're like, yep, go for it. So the, the ROI on that was, I mean, certainly under a year, but we've done, I can't remember how many, how many tons we've done now, maybe 16, 18 tons of cardboard, um, you know, in the past eight months or so. Um, and it's, it's been phenomenal, um, just to be able to get rid of this stuff super fast, make a couple bucks off of it. Um, and then we found out that, uh, the baler can also handle, um, plastic wrap. So any of those kegs that we get back uh, from our distributor, we can go ahead. Uh, we save them actually in, in big super sack totes. Uh, we'd get about six of those full and then somebody spends a day jamming all that shrink wrap into the baler and we can make uh, uh, 740 pound bales of shrink wrap and we can sell those to our recycler too. So there's the, the, the means is out there for some of these hard uh, to dispose of or expensive to dispose of products um, that if you can get them into a format, there's probably a company out there that uh, will buy them from you. Um, but I know everybody's going to ask this question. What about hop the Mylar bags? And unfortunately we were recycling those for a time period, but we found out our local recycler was sending them to China. And as of a few years ago, uh, China uh, cut off that connection. So as of now, uh, and even working with the county too, we have not been able to find any way uh, to uh, prevent those Mylar hot bags from going into the garbage. All right. Has it been difficult to integrate sustainability into company culture? Yes. Um, it's not something people are really aware of or cognitive of. Um, they don't really think about it. Um, 
I mean, you could think of sustainability as, you know, being a hippie, living in a teepee, uh, you know, being a vegan or something like that. Um, but a lot of it is just, there's no information out there about it, you know? So one of the things and one of the challenges is to um, articulate that about what sustainability is. Um, and I think you have to hold yourself um, accountable and know where you're at, um, know what you could do uh, potentially and, you know, say, hey, I could do better. There's things out here that, that we could do to um, be a better company for the earth and be a better company for our employees as well. Um, so I think one of the main things to do is, um, it's a little bit of show and tell, but if you're, if you're doing sustainable things, um, talk about it, um, and, and show it off. I mean, if you, if you're a brewery, that's, uh, even, I mean, sending your grain out to make, uh, dog bones, um, or dog treats or something, or, you know, if your brewery's using, uh, you know, spent grain to put it in your pizza crust or something like that, you know, um, although that'll never get rid of your spent grain problem. It's a cool thing to do. And, and, and people like that. And it kind of, uh, encourages and energizes them to see what they can do on their own. So from, from our, and in, in my point of view is, um, uh, nothing happens if you, if you don't say anything. Um, and even saying that you're not good at something, uh, you know, it doesn't deter people f- away from, you know, trying, um, but it's a, it's an honest approach to say, hey, I care about this and I know that we're not good at it and I think that we can be better. Um, and ultimately you want uh, employee buy-in, you want, you know, company buy-in. I have to go to ownership for, you know, some of the the projects that I'd like to see and stuff. Um, and it's a, it, you know, it's a way to sell your product um, and your brand too and and get people, people excited about sustainability. Um, I mean, I did this, presentation up at Loganitas back in December and a lot of our team was there. Um, you know, and they all gave me accolades afterwards and they're like, Hey, I want to, I want to help out. What can I do? You know? And that's the kind of thing that you want to hear from people. I think people ultimately they want to do good, but they, they don't know how to, and they probably need somebody to, to point them in the direction or lead them, you know? And I'm, I'm happy and I'm proud to, to be in a position that I can, um, you know, accept people's help and you know, help, help them, you know, make the company a better place through sustainability and then in their own personal lives too. How along the same lines for folks out there who are listening and want to make a difference, but don't really know where to start, where do you send them? Um, I would say, I mean, you, you want to, I mean, it's hard to win the war. Uh, Little battles are, are, are a great place to start, and I would pick something that's uh, that's super that's super easy, something that you can like you can show in a short amount of time that you've you've had some achievement. Um, there's a lot of resources out there, and your um, your your trash company probably has programs that can help you uh, you know sort your waste to create signage for you or help you with that. Um, your your wastewater company, um, you can read your municipality. You can reach out to them. I'm sure they have programs. Your electrical company has programs and incentives uh, to you know give you rebates or, or so um, for reaching out to them and changing your light bulbs or so. Um, your water company, uh, they'll come by and do a free water audit for you, and they'll tell you like, hey, this could be better, this could be worse. There's already people out there that kind of have the answers, and all you have to do is just ask for the help. Um, so I would, I would start by making friends with uh, your county, your city, um, and just kind of, uh, just 
saying, hey, here's here's what we're doing. We want to do better. Do you guys have any kind of sustainability programs or, or goals or any kind of things that um, you could direct us to? Um, and they'd be more than happy to do it. Your, your tax dollars that you pay go towards these programs. So you might as well get your money from them. That was Hal McConnell here on the Master Brewers podcast. Check the show notes for lots of great links, including where to buy those giant rubber bands, seated wristbands, and more. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Yeah.